your Bibles this evening to Hebrews, the sixth chapter, and let us continue and finish, the Lord willing, what we began this morning. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, we were dealing with that difficult passage for so many, verses four through six, that describe a group of individuals for whom it is impossible if they shall fall away to recover themselves, renew themselves again to repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. And we want to have an understanding of what the apostle intended by those words. The Arminians take that passage and say you can lose your salvation. How much bondage are men under because they've heard that doctrine preached? Then there are others that try to teach from that passage the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and how much bondage does that create when you don't feel like you're persevering very well. Both sides in this dilemma create burdens on the backs of the Lord's people and we need to find Paul's intention here and that of the Spirit of God that inspired him as to what was under consideration. It is important, moving into Hebrews chapter 6, to remember what we believe about perseverance, what we believe about preservation. What we believe about perseverance is that there is no such thing taught in Scripture. What we believe about preservation is, thanks be to God. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Brethren, you need two witnesses to prove to anyone who might question you about the perseverance of the saints. They are Psalm 89 and Romans chapter 8. Psalm 89 and Romans chapter 8. Psalm 89, that's the verse that we sing so often, the first verse. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness. And if you will take that word faithfulness, you will find it applied to God in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 24, verse 33, and verse 37. God is faithful. Who also will do it? As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Isn't that a better message? Isn't that good news? That your eternal salvation and the assurance of it rests on the faithfulness of God, not on your faithfulness. That is the gospel. That is good news. Thanks be to God for that message. Because now look at verse 29. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. You say, prove it. Look at verse 26. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Verse 27. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. Now do you have a question? who it's talking about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 29, His seed also will I make to endure forever. See, Christ is going to endure forever, according to verse 28. My mercy will I keep for Him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with Him. And if God has chosen you in Christ, you are as secure because that 29th verse says, His seed also. Let's not leave out these precious little adverbs like also. His seed also will I make to endure forever. 
and his throne as the days of heaven. Now get this, brethren, this is so good. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then I will blot their names out of the book of life of the Lamb slain from the fountain. That's so many wish it read that way. These verses are so powerful relative to the preservation of sinning saints. Verse 30, If his children forsake my law, would you call that a falling away? (laughs) To forsake it? This doesn't say to break it. It says to forsake it. If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips." Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. That's Christ. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. Is that powerful? That is the most powerful passage in the Bible, the Old Testament anyway, relative to the preservation of God's elect. Once you read that, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Brethren, you just learned in three minutes, what you could not learn at any Presbyterian seminary in this nation. In three minutes. Now go to Romans chapter 8. Let's see if Paul believed the same thing. Romans chapter 8. Oh, you've got to dive into Hebrews 6 fully confident that though we might break the commandments of God, and we will, God will be merciful and He will be faithful. You know, the world wants to preach, you need to exercise faith. Do you have faith in Christ tonight, brethren? Do you have hope of eternal life through your faith? Say no. Say, I have no hope of eternal life through my faith. The only hope of eternal life I have is through the faith of God to preserve me, as we just read there in Psalm 89. Now look at Romans chapter 8. We read in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And brethren, that isn't talking about automobile accidents, traffic tickets, losing your job, or not cutting the lawn the day you should have. And I've heard that verse applied to all four of the things I just mentioned, and a thousand beside. All things work together for good. I mean, as the, it's the greatest cop-out verse in the whole Bible. All things work together for good. What are, what are the all things of Romans 8, 28? Draw some lines in your Bible. Circle the all things and draw a line down to verse 31 where we have these things. And then connect that line up with five words. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Those are the all things that work together for good to them that love God. You show me a person that loves God, I'll show you a person God knew him before eternity. God predestinated him. God calls him in time. He justified him in Christ, and he'll glorify him at the last day. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? And that includes yourself. And who's the greatest enemy of all relative to your salvation? 
yourself. Yourself. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? I know what we'll say. We'll say we believe in the preservation of God, the preservation of the saints, not the perseverance of the saints, because I don't read anything about us being active in those verses at all. Do you? All those are acts of God relative to our salvation. Verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You need another circle, brethren. Circle the all things and draw another line. Keep it connected. Don't let somebody run you into Romans 8.28 justifying their divorce. All things work together for good. Forget it. The things that work together for good are the things of the context. And they're working together for our salvation. Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, whether that be accepting Christ, inviting Him into your heart, infant baptism, adult baptism, going to the mission field, or any other burden men may lay on your backs? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. I mean, it is God that takes care of the whole thing. God does the justifying. What charge are you going to lay to one of God's elect? The Arminians would say, maintaining good works consistently until the day you die, and at the hour of death, having no unconfessed sins on your conscience. <laughs> God have mercy. That's what they teach. Ever been a Campbellite and asked them about that point? What a burden to bear. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That is speaking of the eternal phase, the legal phase, the vital phase, and the final phase. I'm going to lay a whole lot to your charge in the practical phase. Isn't it precious to have those phases? This We can't lay anything legally, vitally, or otherwise, but we sure can practically. That's what the Bible's written for, to lay a whole lot to our charge. I charge thee, son Timothy... There was Timothy getting a charge from the Apostle Paul as to his ministerial duties. We don't need to look any more, do look any further, do we? Jesus may have said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing. That's another verse we could go to, but we won't. I'll just quote it to you. The angel may have said to Joseph, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, and he will not fail of his duty any more than Joseph failed in calling him Jesus. <laughs> we are secure. So when we go into Hebrews chapter 6, and let's turn back there now, we need not be deterred at all with the Arminians who want to create here a situation of those who were God's saints, born again, regenerated, quickened, converted, understanding the truth, they fell away from the, their knowledge of the truth and they lost their salvation. We can forget that right off the bat. Then we have Calvinists who will take the position in this passage that those in verses 4 and 5 are reprobates. The five characteristics used to describe these individuals aren't really true. It's in their imagination. It's in their outward presentation to the congregation. But it wasn't in sincerity. It wasn't truly there. If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again under repentance. And how many questions can we ask? If they were never there, how can they fall away? From what did they fall? It's ridiculous. How will you renew them again to repentance if they never repented the first time? 
And by looking at those five characteristics, we know that if you're faithful with the Word of God, those five characteristics only describe those that are God's children. So we must throw out the Calvinistic position that this passage is dealing with reprobates. Not only do we know from looking at it that it's not dealing with reprobates, because it proves too much, and it doesn't prove their point, but also because it doesn't fit the context. It would serve no purpose to Paul to have a three verses stuck here dealing with reprobates. You know, reprobates, if they fall away, can't be recovered or renewed to repentance. Are you scared? Are you moved this evening to greater obedience to know that reprobates remain reprobates when they fall away? I, I want, brethren, I want you to, I want you to enjoy the truth. If you only knew, and I don't think many of you know, some of you do, how much theological discussion, confusion, and study you are just sailing right over, if you can see that. The third position that's been taught by some is the position maintained by unconditionalists. Knowing that the Arminian position isn't true, knowing that the Calvinistic position isn't true, the emphasis is placed on the word if, and that if is made entirely hypothetical and impossible for it to happen because verse 6 is actually dealing with legal or vital falling away. When it says, if they shall fall away, it means if they were to become unborn again, if they were to lose their justification before God, if that were to happen, it'd be impossible to renew them again to repentance for the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no value and Christ can't die again. That's the position you've been taught in the past and I have been the poor bloke that is responsible for having taught it to you most recently. God forgive me. I preached to the light of my understanding on Hebrews chapter 6 when I used that passage in our study of the preservation of the saints. And I am not ashamed to stand here tonight and preach something else because I love what else I'm going to preach to you tonight. Let's approach it this way. Let's get a review of the tremendous pressure Paul brings to bear on these Hebrew Christians that they not depart from the faith, depart from the living God, let the gospel slip, and go back to Judaism. Let's remind ourselves of that. I want you to see this so clearly. You say to yourself, why didn't I pick that up in my reading? I want you to see it that clearly. Look at chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 3. We want to pick up what Paul has already taught in this book and what he'll teach after this chapter relative to the obligation and the threat of irremediable and imminent judgment. You say, I'm not used to using those two words. Irremediable means there is no recovery, there is no mercy, there is no remedy. Imminent means about to take place. Those two words are very important, not that they're found here in the book of Hebrews, but that they quickly convey exactly what Paul tries to convey. Chapter 2 and verse 3, as a result of the fact that God has spoken to us by His Son, and because in verse 2 we have a reminder that when God spoke by angels, every transgression received a just recompense of reward. I mean, if you disobeyed Moses' law, what happened to you? Chapter 10 tells us, you died 
without mercy. How shall we escape, verse 3, if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? This was not spoken by angels, but by the Lord. How shall we escape? Do you know what the answer is to that question? There is no escape. It is impossible to let these things slip and escape and avoid judgment and come back to them again. If you let these things slip, Hebrew Christians, it is all over. You have had too many privileges under the Gospel and under the Old Testament, and the time is too late. For the Hebrews, this was it. Jesus Christ preached to that nation. Most of that nation rejected Him. He destroyed that nation 40 years later. Some of that nation heard the apostles preached, believed on Christ, and were converted. And they were true saints of God. But then, as they suffered persecution, as they looked at all their lost privileges under the Old Testament religion, they considered going back to it. And by going back to it, they were going to put themselves in the same situation, in the same condition as the murderers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because they did not take advantage of the privilege of the gospel that God gave them, He was going to close off the door of opportunity. How shall we escape? Didn't Jesus say that one time when He said, How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? There was no escape. If they didn't accept Christ and follow Him and maintain their profession, the Jews as a nation were obliterated. The only ones that survived were those that followed Christ. They were outside the walls of a city where 1.1 million perished in a three-year war in 70 A.D. That's in chapter 2. Look at chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 11, speaking of those Israelites that stood on the Jordan River and did not enter the land of Canaan, God said of them, So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. God had patience with those Israelites for a number of years, hadn't He? He'd put up with their murmuring and their complaining. But He reached a point where He said, He swore against those that did not take advantage of Canaan's rest. And He swore unto them, They shall not enter in to My rest. You reach a point with God where God says, You have received more privileges than you deserve, and I'm through with My long-suffering. And when he's through with his long suffering, he swears against you. It's called the curse of God. The Bible tells us not to fear what men can do unto us, but to fear what God can do unto us. And God can curse you by swearing against you any further blessings. And you shall be destroyed, and that without remedy, as Proverbs 29 and verse 1 makes so clear. But the lesson of Hebrews chapter 3 is God swore to Israel. For it's over. I will destroy all of you in the wilderness. They repented. They said, we'll go take it. They girded on their swords and they went up and Moses wouldn't even go with them because Moses knew what was going to happen. The Amalekites came upon them and chased them in battle and they never made it into Canaan. Even though they repented, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Do you follow that? I'm going to keep asking you to follow that. There you reach a point where it's impossible because God swears against the people. And I'm not pulling out this swearing from the book of Numbers. 
I'm pulling it out of Hebrews chapter 3 because this is the context of Hebrews chapter 6. God will make a decision that it's all over and then it is impossible. That's chapter 3, but notice what he says in verse 12. After that illustration of swearing in his wrath, God says immediately, Take heed, brethren, through Paul, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, Arthur Pink says that a, that a, that a true child of God cannot depart from the living God. It cannot happen because he believes in the perseverance of the saints. Well, Paul said it could happen, and Paul was afraid that it would happen. And if Paul hadn't been afraid, you know what? We wouldn't have 13 chapters in the New Testament this day because he wouldn't have written the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews was written because God's elect Hebrews could depart from the living God and go right back under the Old Testament law. There is a departing from the living God that he was afraid of, and if they were to depart, he was afraid the same curse would be uttered against them. They shall not enter into my rest. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 1. Let us therefore fear, Paul says of himself and the Hebrews, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Because if you come short of it, you're going to be cut off and you'll never get into it. Because it will be impossible to get you into it if you come short of it. Look at verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Those Old Testament Israelites did not believe. God swore against them. Paul here is saying, if you don't labor diligently to enter into God's rest of the New Testament, God can swear against you and you can be in the same boat. The same example of unbelief. Do you follow how he's building his case? Jews, if you go back, it's too late. You don't need to get to Hebrews 6 to see that. It's in chapter 2. It's in chapter 3. It's in chapter 4. Why all the emphasis in chapter 3 and 4 on the word today? While it is called today. Exhort one another daily while it is called today as it is called today, if ye will hear His voice. Because the day for the Jews was about to end. Now, Jesus said it was about to end in His day. Paul's writing 20, 30 years later. We're getting close to 70 A.D. If the day was close in Christ's day, how close was it in Paul's day? It was close. While it is called today, if you will hear His voice, don't let God swear against you because of your unbelief. Look at chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 will move on the other side of chapter 6 and see he continues the same line of reasoning. Hebrews 10, 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? It is impossible to renew you again to repentance because there is no mercy left in a merciful God when you have done despite to all that God gave those Jews. Verse 27, But a certain, fearful, looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. The only thing you can be sure of, Hebrews, if you depart from the gospel, is a certain judgment and fiery indignation that God is going to bring upon you. Listen, you apply that any other way, and I'll get you in deep, deep trouble. You want to apply that to Gentiles living today? Directly? Have you ever sinned willfully? Have you ever sinned willfully after that you received the knowledge of the truth? 
You men, ever heard Matthew 5, 28, that you ought not to look on a woman to lust after her? Ever heard that? Ever understood it? Ever sinned against that verse after that? You want to run Gentiles through Hebrews 10, 26? Or do you want to run Hebrews into it? And when it says if we sin willfully, it means to go back to Judaism. I mean, the, the book gets so simple, it's almost ABC level. Remember who he's talking to. All those points I spent that whole first sermon on. Paul, writing to believing Jews. If we, if we believing Jews, sin willfully after that, we've received the gospel and go back to Judaism. All we have is a certain judgment and fiery indignation that awaits us. He that despised Moses' law, verse 28, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. What a mouthful, but how simple. Hebrews, sanctified, born again, elect children, converted. They depart from the faith and go back under Judaism. They do despite to the Spirit of grace. The spirit of all those miracles and signs and wonders given in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. The blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified. They trod underfoot the Son of God. Oh, the Son of God, He isn't important. Let's go back under Moses. Let's go back under the Levitical priesthood. You do that? Of how much sore punishment would those Hebrews be worthy of compared to no mercy under the Old Testament? See, God has dealt with that nation for thousands of years, brethren. They were building and accumulating wrath. You know, continuous compound interest? They had it. But it wasn't in the way of a blessing. It was in the way of judgment. That's why Jesus Christ said to His generation, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. He poured out upon that one generation all the righteous blood shed in this world from Abel. That's a long time ago, brethren. That's the first blood ever shed in this world, human blood, all the way down to Zacharias. That's the finish of the Old Testament. All that blood was squeezed and all the judgment for that blood was squeezed into one generation because they had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. If they were to go back under Judaism, it was impossible for them to be recovered again to repentance because of the sore punishment that God would bring upon them. You ought to see anybody in Hebrews 10 who doesn't understand the message of the book of Hebrews trying to apply that directly to Gentiles. Now, I'll apply it indirectly because the weight lays upon us. Are we being as faithful with the things God has revealed to us? And I dare say, we know better and are under greater gospel benefits and privileges and blessings than the Jews that Paul was writing to in Hebrews chapter 10. I feel that way. Look at verse 30. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if they were to depart from the faith, if they were to fall away from the New Testament, they would fall directly into the hands of the living God that was going to pour out his wrath on that nation. It is impossible if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance. Talking about believing Hebrews that go back against Christ 
and basically put themselves shoulder to shoulder with those that crucified the Lord of glory. There was no more mercy. There was no way. It was impossible. How shall we escape if we were to do such a thing like that, being believing Hebrews under the ministry of the apostles with all the benefits of the sign gifts and wonders that they had if they were to go back? Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, Paul still writing to these Hebrew believers. He says in verse 15, looking diligently. Hebrews 12, 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Does that mean they lose their legal standing before God? Brethren, Hebrews 12, 15, does that mean they lose their legal standing before God? No, they lose their understanding and profession and obedience to the gospel of the grace of God. They lose the grace of God in that way. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I wonder how many Hebrews there were inside the city walls of Jerusalem that remembered a few things about the gospel as that city came caving in around them and as their children were eaten by the starving mobs that roamed the cities, roamed the streets of that city. We don't know. But we know this. A man as vile as Esau once repented, and he did it with tears, but it was too late. And notice he found no place of repentance. And brethren, if you can't fit that with Hebrews 6, I give up. That is so plain. The whole argument of this book is the Jews have a day called today. If they don't hold fast unto the end, of that day when God will judge the Jewish nation, if they slip back into Judaism, God is through with them. And though they might seek it with tears, they will find no place for repentance, but they will be rejected. And brethren, that word's important too when we get to verse 8. This book is so simple and fits together so well. Do you see the lesson there? He again is appealing to those Hebrew believers. Brethren, you could turn out to be like Esau. You could do something really stupid. And that is to sell all the blessings of the New Testament for the Old Testament. That's like selling your birthright for a piece of meat. Because the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament cannot be compared. One is so much superior and better than the other. That is the lesson of those three verses. Look at chapter 12 and verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Period. That's a strong statement. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, and that's Moses, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Much more shall not we escape. Do you see the message? If you go back, if you fall away, if you depart from the faith, it's going to be far worse than if you went against the Old Covenant. 
How shall we escape? If there's no way to escape, then can we say it is impossible to escape? I'm trying to make you think about the word impossible from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Do you have a picture of the overall context of Hebrews? Is it a sweet letter? Done well, but does it ever bring pressure to bear for them not to go back? And verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6, all it is saying there is the same thing said in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 10, chapter 12. You go back, it's too late. That, that is so gloriously simple, I want to cry. I, you know what we ought to do for a Sunday evening service? I ought to bring commentaries in here from Bob Jones University and from my library and make you people read them until we want to have a... That's not polite. It'd be a vomit party. It'd be terrible. You'd get so sick. For any of you who want to know how I study, I study the Bible, and then on Saturday nights, and I don't know why this is a habit I've got into, I read my commentaries. And I get so worked up on some Saturday nights reading all this tripe, page after page of it, and trying to weasel out of Hebrews chapter 6. But I want you people to appreciate the truth. That's all the reason I'm saying this for. I want you to appreciate the truth and to see how this book fits together and that it's not telling you if you sin, you lose your eternal salvation. That's how Paul sets the context. Let's remember a general principle of Scripture, and I want you to see it in the black and white in Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29. I'm building my case. I'm not going to do any more tonight. We're not going to finish chapter 6. That's as obvious as the timepiece laying in front of me. And I don't care. I do not care. I want you to get this. I want you to be able to read the book of Hebrews whether I live or die. And if you live to be 80 years old and say, this is a simple book. This is a simple book. And if some shyster comes along and tries to sell you final perseverance of the saints, you'll be able to shut him down and eat him for breakfast, as I tell my kids. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1. He, that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Brethren, that verse has two concepts I want you to get. Those concepts are conveyed with the words imminence and irremediability. That means there is no remedy, and that means it's coming quickly. It comes suddenly, and there is no remedy. He, that being often reproved. Now let me ask you about a group of people. Had there ever been a group of people in this world that God had reproved more often than the Jewish nation? God is my witness without exaggeration. I could turn you to a thousand passages in the Old Testament, where God tells those Jews and reminds them that He sent prophets rising up betimes over and over and over again, and they would not hear them. That nation was reproved and reproved and reproved, and they hardened their neck when Christ appeared in the scene. And any Jew that was converted and heard the gospel and believed it and then decided he'd go back was hardening his neck just like the rest. And you show me a person that's been often reproved and he hardens his neck and I'll show you one that God shall destroy suddenly and that without remedy. Does that fit he, Isaiah, 
Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. Imminent destruction without remedy. It is impossible to renew them again under repentance. I've proved it from Paul's context. I've proved it from the general principle of Scripture. Now let's go to the words of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 3. You say, why do you have to be so thorough? Brethren, I'm preaching something that counters something I preached to you two years ago. I'm going to be very thorough. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. John the Baptist here is preaching. He wasn't the easiest of preachers that ever walked this earth, the kindest or the sweetest. But here's his message to the Pharisees. Verse 7. O generation of vipers. He calls them generation. Why does he say generation? Because they are the culmination of all the evil of the Jews. In one generation, they had it all. They were the culmination. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And brethren, that isn't hell. That isn't the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. The judgment to come was the destruction of Jerusalem that he warns this nation regarding over and over again. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How do we know that that is the destruction of Jerusalem? By going back to Malachi that I preached to you a few months ago. Before that great and terrible day of the Lord come, God promised he would send Elijah the prophet. And Elijah the prophet is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. This is the wrath to come. And it's to come in 40 years from this statement. Verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now, today, now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And how recoverable is a tree that's been burned in the fire, brethren? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. If they go back under the Old Testament system of religion, they are not good trees and they'll be burned in the fire. This all fits together so easily if you're following. I'm just going to pour it on. We'll just close with, I mean, it's going to be a while before we close, but let me just pour it on here. <laughs> Please, let's lay it on. This is the message of the New Testament. Listen, the gospel first went to the Jews for a reason, because <laughs> they were also the first ones that were going to lose it. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wouldn't you say that falling away is not bringing forth good fruit? Of uh, Hebrews 6 and 6. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. Not that it will be 2,819 years from now when we have the last judgment, and the wicked are cast into everlasting fire, but his fan is in his hand now, as verse 10 said, and he will throughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And when we studied the book of Malachi, we showed that Malachi already had prophesied of these things. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. You say, but that sounds like unquenchable fire. 
It more than sounds like it. It looks like it. Because that's what it says. But the first time Nebuchadnezzar burned up the city of Jerusalem, it was called unquenchable fire. Go read it. Jeremiah has several occurrences of that term. All unquenchable fire means is it doesn't get quenched until it's burned up whatever it's burning. Now that's a statement of John the Baptist. Let's look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus gives a parable. It's the parable of the householder. He plants a vineyard. He hedges it, digs a wine press, builds a tower. He rents it out to husbandmen, goes into a far country. And when the fruit drew near so that he can receive, receive the profit of this vineyard, he sends back his servants, his husbandmen. He sends servants back to the husbandmen to pick up the profit. That is P-R-O-F-I-T, not P-R-O-P-H-E-T. There was no profit involved here as far as the prophet who speaks the revelation of God. Financial profit. Did any of you fall for that one? Or am I wasting my breath? Verse 35, And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And who do the, who do the servants represent? The prophets of God. I mean, they died all sorts of deaths. In all sorts of ways, the Jews destroyed them. Again, he sent other servants, verse 36, more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord thereof the... When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now this is quite a question to lay on the Pharisees. Now they have to answer. Here's a question. What will he do? This is back when men believed in authority, brethren. Today, it'd be to get an arbitrator, sit down at a table, and resolve all their differences and do nothing. Maybe dock him a week's wages, lay him off for a month. But they wouldn't do anything. This is in a day when there was authority. And the answer comes rather quickly. Verse 41. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their season. And brethren, what a mouthful. Can, do you know the application of that verse? He would take the gospel away from the Jews, he would give it to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would give him the fruit he'd been looking for. And that is growth and progress in the knowledge of Christ. And then Jesus goes on to say, haven't you ever read this further? That uh, the stone which the builders rejected in verse 42, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That's the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles. Verse 44, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. If you fall in the gospel, ah, you're broken in Jesus Christ, and what a state to be in. If you don't follow the gospel and you depart from it, if they shall depart, if they shall fall away, if you fall away from the gospel, instead of falling on the gospel, the stone will roll over you and grind you to powder. It is impossible if they shall fall away, to renew them again in repentance because powder finds it difficult 
to repent. This is the imminent and the irremediable warning of Jesus Christ. And I love, I love the 45th verse. We can't leave it. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, you know, you say parables are hard to understand. This one wasn't for them. They perceived that he spake of them. Isn't that precious? Don't you love that? They're standing here listening to this story about the husband and the Lord miserably destroying those men. And all of a sudden, you can see them get very sober. Very sober as they realized he was speaking of them. They knew it. Why don't we know it? Why don't Calvinists know it when they get to Hebrews chapter 6? They knew it. We need to know it. This is the message of the New Testament as far as the Jews are concerned. Repent and believe it or else. Look at chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, He didn't leave them alone. They had got the message, but he wanted to give them some more. Verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. This is the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Brethren, these six verses describe the treatment of the apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Jews. He had made a great marriage feast. It is the gospel church. It is the blessings of the gospel. The fatlings are killed. It's a glorious rest. We can enter into Canaan and rest from all our labors under the law. And they made light of it. They refused to come. They went to their own little entertainments. And brethren, this invitation did not come from a poor person nor one that was impotent. It came from a king. Verse 7 this is Jesus Christ speaking. You've got it in the red writing. But when the king heard thereof, when the servants got back and told him what had happened, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now do you need an interpretation of that verse? He was wroth. Swore in his wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. You know what this passage goes on to say? That he said, forget those that were first bidden. We'll invite some others to come. And who, were, who was that but the Gentiles? He swore in his wrath. He was wroth. He destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And that occurred 10 years approximately after Paul wrote the sixth chapter of Hebrews. Look at Matthew chapter 23. I wonder if there's a way for the Lord's people to say I give. That way I can move on. I want you to know this one. This is the whole message to the Jews. I just, it's, it's, it's on every page. It's on every page. Repent or else. It's impossible if you don't. Because you're going to be cut off. Matthew chapter 23, verse 32 is a verse I've already quoted. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. 
why these Jews thought within themselves, if we lived back during the prophets, we would have listened to them. Well, the fact is, they were facing the Son of God himself, and they weren't listening to him. And so Jesus says, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generations of vipers, how ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets, and wise men, and scribes, some of them ye shall kill and crucify, some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. No wonder Paul preached, while it is called today, if you will hear his voice, because all these things were to come on that generation. Verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He would utterly destroy the Jews that did not believe. Chapter 24, we have the great description of the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 24, we get down to verse 34, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled. That is that great tribulation that the world had not seen the likes of it yet was to come on that generation within that 40-year time period from when Jesus Christ spoke. Verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. This promise that I'm making about the destruction of the, Jer of the Jews is as true as it can be. It is going to happen. Look at verses 12 and 13, relative to just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. This is Matthew 24. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Does that verse help you at all? Does that fit with Hebrews at all? Beautifully. He that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. He that doesn't endure unto the end, what will happen to him? Destroyed here in this destruction. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Those Jews were going back under Old Testament religion because of the iniquity that was abounding in their nation. I could turn you to Matthew 12, 45. Jesus said the Jewish nation was like a man who's had demons cast out of him. After the demons are cast out, they wander around, they get lonely, they come back and they look inside the man. They see the place all clean and garnished. I mean, that means there's flowers sitting there. And they go and get seven other spirits worse than they and they enter into that man. The last state of that man is worse than the first state. And Jesus said, that is a description of this generation. Jesus cast out a whole lot of devils in three and a half years. I wonder how many came back in the other 36 and a half. That was a description of a generation totally turned over to the possession of the devil and blindness and obstinance and thus utterly destroyed. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Discretion is the better part of valor. There are so many passages I would like you to see just to get the overall feel for the whole thing. It makes it so simple. Hopefully you've got it. 
I, I run out of time so quickly. De Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. Moses speaks, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. See, God gave them what they wanted. He gave them Jesus Christ. They could sit and listen to Jesus Christ. It wasn't so terrifying as Mount Sinai. He gave them their heart's desire. Verse 17, And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter says, God will destroy them from among the people. God would raise up a prophet like Moses so that those poor little Jews wouldn't have to listen to God's fiery voice on the top of Mount Sinai. They could have a man in front of them that could give them God's word. God said, it shall be just as they have spoken. I will raise up a prophet. That prophet was the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they did not listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, I will require it. And any believing Jew that went back under the Old Testament, I will require it. It is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance because God will require it of them. Look at Acts chapter 2. For anyone listening to this tape, there is an outline that accompanies it. I am passing over 50 references on this point to, to shorten up this evening's sermon on this particular these particular verses. Please get a hold of that outline if you haven't received sufficient proof yet of the message of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Look at Acts chapter 2, the first sermon preached by Peter at Pentecost. We read in verse 16, the Jews were wondering what was going on with all the speaking in tongues, and Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he then describes what was happening in the way of tongues, dreams, and visions. And he says in verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What salvation is that right there? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is not salvation from the lake of fire. It is salvation from the destruction of Jerusalem. Because that is the great and notable day of the Lord that immediately followed the outpouring of the Spirit of God at the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 40 of Acts chapter 2 to prove my point. Peter is ending his first great sermon. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. Here is Peter's message. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Isn't that amazing? And these Armenians, get a, how many places do you think it's happening in this city alone tonight? Call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. And they might even be appealing to Acts chapter 2 and verse 20. Brethren, that's salvation from that generation, from the generation that Jesus Christ said He would bring upon them the greatest tribulation the world had ever seen, and the righteous blood of all men from Abel to the end of the Old Testament. 
That is the message of the gospel, Jews. You get the first chance to hear it. You get the first chance to lose it. What will you do with it? Call the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Fall away from the name of the Lord and you'll be destroyed in that great and notable day of the Lord. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. See if these words don't fit in. Didn't Peter say in chapter 3 of this book that Paul and he wrote about the same things to the Jews? Watch this. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. Would you call that falling away? The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed in her wallowing in the, mire, in the mire. Peter said if someone has escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they go back into that stuff and they're overcome in it, it it'd be better for them if they had never heard it in the first place because it's going to be an aggravated crime now. It's going to be an aggravated offense against God. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. The lesson is simple in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Believing Hebrews who had been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift of the New Testament, the powers of the world to come, the good word of God, had enjoyed and received the privileges and blessings of the New Testament rest, if they were to fall away from that, go against their profession in Christ, and go back to the Old Testament, that is the same as if they were crucifying Jesus Christ all over again. Because they're saying, we don't need Christ, we don't want anything to do with Him, He is an imposter. Because if Jesus Christ is not whom He claimed to be, he is the greatest imposter, lie, and fraud this world has ever witnessed. Because he claimed to be God, for starters. If they went back, it was as if they were the crucifiers of Jesus Christ because they're crucifying him again to themselves. When Paul would preach to the Jews, if they wouldn't believe his preaching, if they'd oppose it and contradict it, how much time did he spend with them? In Acts chapter 18 and verse 6, Acts 18 and verse 6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. With the Jews it was a quick turn off. If they didn't hear the gospel, they were left in their sins under judgment. If they believed it, the apostles wrote and tried to keep them in it. But if they were to depart from it, if they were to fall away, it'd be impossible to renew them again into repentance because God was dealing very strictly without mercy with Jews under the New Testament. You know, many more examples could be raised of that. We don't have the time for that this evening. Look at Romans chapter 11. See if another chapter in your Bible doesn't sort of fit in with Hebrews chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 11. We have an olive tree in Romans chapter 11. The olive tree represents the worship of God. It represents God's dealings with men. It represents the church. It represents God's kingdom. It represents the privileges and blessings of the worship of God, the scriptures, the prophets, the ministry. The Jews are cut off of all of that, and the Gentiles are grafted into this olive tree. Notice the wording in verse 18. Boast not against the branches. He's writing to Gentiles. Boast not against the branches. You Gentiles don't boast against the Jews. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Remember where the New Testament church came from. It came from the Old Testament church, which was all Jewish. Verse 19, thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. You can imagine a Gentile being rather cocky in that statement. Verse 20, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. Because of unbelief, God simply broke them off. Now, if you're broken off from gospel privileges and benefits, would you agree that it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance? Because they're broken off. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest He also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity. But toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in His goodness. Otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. There is a warning to the Gentiles to make sure they stand by fear and recognize their obligations under the gospel. But the important point I want you to connect with Hebrews 6 is found in verses 25 through 28. Because Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. There is a mystery in God's dealings with Jews and Gentiles we need to keep in mind. Lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. That's all written in the Old Testament, future tense, about what happened at the cross, when the Deliverer entered into Zion, and saved elect Israel, spiritual Israel, from their sins. The mystery is, that a lot of those elect, saved Israelites are blinded. Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Up there in verse 23 where we read, And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Did God graft in any Jews that at one point hadn't believed when they heard the gospel they believed it? Can you think of any by name? Like Paul? You know, this, he's, just, he's referring back to what happened to him over here in, chapter, in the same chapter, verses 1 and 2. Hath God cast away his people? Absolutely. I mean, is there no fruit at all from the Jewish nation? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. But once God called Paul out and gave him that privilege of being a special Jew, to get the blessings of the Old Covenant and the New, if Paul was to go back 
to go back against what God had given him, it would be impossible for him to be renewed again into repentance. The fact that God did bring some, a limited number of Jews, to repentance the first time doesn't mean he'd do it the second time. Just in case you saw any confusion there between Hebrews, the mystery of the gospel. There are Jew elect Jews in the days of Hebrews that God had blinded. Enemies of the gospel, but beloved for the Father's sakes. They were God's elect. This fits so well with what Paul's dealing with over there in Hebrews 11. And if those elect Jews in Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, were to fall away, go back into the Old Testament, God would just cover them up with blindness. He'd swear against them. You're not going to enter into my rest. And what is that rest called in Romans chapter 11? The olive tree. The olive tree. He would, he would cut them off and leave them off although there were some that had the opportunity to enter into it, as Paul was an example. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 6. This is just like chapter 2, just like chapter 10, just like chapter 12. For those Jews that have been blessed with gospel privileges, if they were to take them for granted, neglect them, speak lightly of them, avoid them, reject them, God would irremediably judge them, and he was going to do it soon. Verses 7 and 8 compare men, the two different kinds of Hebrews, those that would hold out and bear fruit and those that would fall away and go back under Judaism to ground. Verse 7, For the earth, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. Obviously, those are God's blessed people and God's blessing them, sending rain so that it brings forth fruit. But then there's verse 8. But that which beareth thorns and briars, if these Jews, instead of bringing forth gospel fruit, were to go back under the beggarly elements of the Old Testament and be like ground bringing forth thorns and briars, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected is rejected just like all those other statements that we have read if they didn't accept Christ God would cut them off God would cloud them up God would blind them God would harden their hearts God would judge them those that endure unto the end shall be saved those that don't shall not be saved they are rejected for that's the first step in God's judgment he rejected anyone who went back under Judaism. Second, they're nigh unto cursing. That means they're right at cursing time, which means, swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. The curse of God will be issued against them. When that curse of God is, is, is issued against them, it is impossible if they shall fall away to be renewed again into repentance. And the end of anyone that God has issued his curse against, burn not in hell, burned up in the city that God said he would burn up. One thing I want to make sure of as we close, don't take Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12 and all the rest of it and make it so directly applicable to the Jews that it doesn't bear weight on Gentiles. This book was written to the Hebrews, obviously. Its direct application were to the Hebrews of Paul's day.
And the Hebrews of Paul's day are a great example to the Gentiles of our day of what will happen to us if we neglect the privileges that God has granted us in the gospel. God has chosen you people to be a very select and small minority in this world's population just as he chose the Jewish nation. What will you do with so great salvation? What will you do with the good things you have heard spoken by the Son of God and by his prophets? To whom much is given, much shall be required. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. There are people under the sound of my voice in this room. There are people listening by tape who have heard the reproof of the gospel. They've heard the instruction of the gospel over and over again. And we who have been so abundantly blessed with great privileges under the gospel have not taken advantage of it. And you place yourselves in the same precarious situation that these Hebrews were in. Irremediable judgment and sudden and imminent judgment. Judgment that could occur at any time and judgment that would be without remedy. But we always think within ourselves, I have tomorrow to repent. And when the Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, it includes even presuming on the long-suffering and patience of God. Because that too has an end. There are people in this room that have not obeyed the gospel. 